Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. In this HR Chat episode, we'll consider the employee experience, mental well-being at work, and rewards and recognition. Our guest this time is Gethin Naden. Gethin is a psychology graduate who has been helping some of the world's largest organizations to improve their employee experience and well-being for almost two decades. The last eight years have been spent working as part of the senior leadership team at Benefex. As a frequent writer and speaker on employee experience and employee well-being, Gethin has been featured in The Guardian, The Huffington Post, The Financial Times, as well as a major HR reward and pension publications. Gethin is also a regular keynote speaker and guest lecturer at events and a founding member of the Engage for Success Wellbeing Thought Action Group. He's also listed on the Employee Engagement Power List and one of Cardiff's life's one to watch in the city. In 2018, Gethin published his first book, the five-star rated Amazon HR bestseller, A World of Good, Lessons from Around the World in Improving the Employee Experience, which has gone on to inspire HR and reward teams at some of the world's best known brands. Gethin, it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you to the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Really pleasure to be on and talk to you. Okay, so uh, before we get into the the in-depth questions for today's interview, uh, beyond my wee introduction there, maybe you can tell our listeners a bit more about you, your your career background and your current role. Yeah, so kind of as you mentioned, you know, kind of a strong background in psychology from pretty much university age, um, really interested in kind of how people's minds work, how people react to things, um, you know, how to create better worlds and better lives for people. Um, and as my career progressed, you know, kind of through employee benefits and engagement and HR tech, I've been really focused on actually making a real impact for people at work. Um, big believer in kind of creating really good, supportive workplaces. Um, it it kind of sounds pretty obvious now, but, you know, one of the reasons why I wrote the book is lots of the new ideas that we have in the world, lots of the Googles and the Facebooks and the LinkedIn, they do these really seemingly progressive things that actually organizations have been doing for around the world in kind of you know 200 years ago um so it's almost like we're kind of going full circle and you know we a great example is kind of the working day and how much that's up for debate now you know should the working day be shorter should the working week be shorter you know we've lived with the eight hour working day in kind of most of uh, most of america and europe for just over 100 years and you know our lives have changed inexplicably during that time yet we haven't changed some of those things like the working time. So really interested in kind of just making, helping companies become more progressive. Um, and I'm sure we'll go into the detail of that uh, through this podcast. We'll be right back after this message from Espresso. It's time to transform your workplace for good. Espresso.com is the first culture benefits platform designed to help create total community, well-being, and recognition, and with an experience that HR and people love. Join companies like Pinterest, Tesla, Box, and ServiceNow who are already using Espresso to make their cultures happier and healthier. Espresso.com is total well-being and culture benefits reimagined. That's E-S-P-R-E-S-A dot com and request a demo today. The people power is in the platform. So due to low levels of unemployment and other factors, employee experience is often a deciding factor for, for top talent looking for that next role. 
Uh, where, where are firms going, in your opinion? Where, where are they going wrong when it comes to attracting and retaining top talent? So I think we, we've kind of lived with employee experience in the consciousness of most kind of HR and reward people, I guess, for at least two years now. Um, but I still, I'm still not entirely sure most people really realize what uh, employee experience is. I, th- I don't think people realize that, you know, it's this collection of things that we experience at work. It's not just pay or flexible working. It's the tech we use, the emotional support we receive, the benefits we get, that sense of belonging, the autonomy. Um, and so I still think there's some employees that don't realize that. I think there's a very heavy focus on things like tech only because employee experience has become a pretty good marketing term, right? So every major HR uh, tech provider in the world has kind of now rebranded as we can help you improve the employee experience. And that's probably true, but it's a big collection of things. And um, and I think just because somebody like a Google does stuff, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in your organization. So I think where people kind of get it wrong is they don't really think about delivering the best employee experience for their people. You know, don't, it doesn't matter what other people do. It doesn't matter what your competitor does. You kind of if you take an individual employee, your only benchmark is the best experience they've had before they came to work to you. So if you can better that experience, it doesn't really matter what anyone else is doing. That person's going to enjoy working with you. Um, and I also think, you know, we, we live in a world where we haven't evolved enough to cope with the world. So while tech is kind of domin- dominating our lives and ruining our sleep and disconnecting us from other people and social media is making us feel worse about ourselves, modern life doesn't feel easy and employers want to work for somebody that cares about them and i think the employee experience is really is that it's it's seeped in empathy for the individual it's how do i remove those points of frustration and how do i just make life a little bit better for my employees and i think people still haven't really got around to understanding that sometimes okay thank you very much now organizations can analyze an employer brand to see how ex-employees talk about their employer online employees can also rate and review their employers we've never had transparency quite like this before does this mean that there are no hiding places for employers now how how can hr manage bad press should they try and manage bad press uh yes i think it does make it hard to hide um and to be honest i love that i think uh you know as a consumer i want to know who treats their employees well because they're the people who are going to get my money um you know, there are big employers in the UK that have rebranded and use how they treat their employees as part of their consumer brand. Um, you know, if you go onto websites like Patagonia in the US, you know, that's probably a really good example. The, the people that work with them and the, how they feel about their people is, is ingrained in their consumer brand because they know that people want to go and work for these caring organizations, but they also want to buy for those caring organizations. And so I think when people don't do that right, I think quite rightly, the media is now kind of getting their claws into them and exposing them. And we've seen you know, right across Europe, the US, and you know, pretty much all the world, employers like Uber, Wells Fargo, uh, Sports Direct, you know, these big, big employers that the way they treat their employees has started to be exposed online. And actually, that's significantly affected their business. And I think that sends a really strong message to everyone else that kind of says, you know, this is the age we live in now. You have to treat your employees well. People don't come to work just to get paid and that's it. And that's the end of the transaction. Um, and so I think for HR to manage that, I think, you know, there are enough examples for us now to know what it's like to not treat somebody well. But, you know, it's this probably isn't a week that goes by that somebody doesn't send me 
some kind of a tweet where somebody has explained about a bad interview process they had where somebody might have been horrible to them or kind of been a bit racist or misogynistic to the interviewee or somebody explaining about how they've been treated at work. Um, there was one fairly recently somebody sent me where an employee in New Zealand um, was having mental health issues, called in sick and got a text from his boss saying, get over it, come to work or you're going to get fired. And it's just that we don't live in that world anymore, you know, that people can't treat them like that. So I think I often talk about HR people becoming best, better marketeers, you know, communicating to employees and explaining stuff to employees is like advertising, right? And we see that a lot in the benefits industry. If you want benefit take up, you've got to effectively advertise those benefits to your employees. Um, but I think that probably means HR need to become um, public relations officers as well, because they own typically most organizations that employ a brand. So they've really got to keep on top of your glass door reviews, what people are saying about you online, what their sentiments are like online. And I think you can probably manage that and solve some of those problems if you really care about them. Yeah, let's let's delve into that a little bit more. Uh, you've suggested that employee experience shouldn't be something that just happens. It should be something that you've carefully designed, that the HR department, I'm assuming, are, are deeply involved with that. So uh, what, what goes into mapping out a first-rate employer experience? So I think one, one of the great examples of this kind of stuff, I think, is um, what always springs to mind is um, – you know, you've got some Gordon Ramsay programs in the UK and the US where, you know, he will go to a restaurant undercover, he'll go to a hotel undercover and stay the night and all that kind of stuff and then feed back to the owners about what's wrong with the way that they kind of deliver that service. Um, in a HR context, I don't think people do that. I don't think HR experience their own employee experience. So, um, you know, how many HR people kind of go through their own onboarding process? You know, you design a great process, but do you actually go through that yourself and imagine what it might be like for somebody who is scared and nervous about coming to work with you and it's their first day? And, and actually, is that designed with empathy? Because when you look at any really good design, product design or otherwise, empathy is at the core of it. You know, empathy is a core design principle of most major product designers, Apple being kind of one of the most prominent ones. Uh, and that is um, sympathizing and empathizing with what that person is going through. And so, you know, one of the great things I always use as an example is on an onboarding process, you know, our employee experience starts as soon as you hear about a brand, right? So the, you, you've heard the name Apple, for example, and your employee experience has started. You might never work there, but you start to get to understand what that brand is, what the employees might be like. You might see their store and see what people are interacting like that, that work there. So you're already experiencing what it is to be an employee to a certain extent within that organization. Um, and so I think when you kind of think about the empathy and how we design stuff, um, I think you really need to get to the root of what, what kind of problems are we solving and what difficulties do people come across. And so that onboarding process, for example, might be that you go for an interview with a company and then you think it went well, but you don't hear anything for two to three weeks. And that's really common. But that's a terrible experience because anyone that's applied for a job is really nervous, especially if you don't have a job currently. So that's a really kind of nervous, anxiety-driven experience. And if you're letting somebody just wait and wait and not giving them any kind of feedback at all for weeks on end, that's a pretty poor experience, I think. Um, and so I think when you look at any good product design, again, asking why is a really good start. So typically you'll see product designers ask five whys. So, you know, why are we doing this? Why would the person feel like that? You know, why, why would they interact with us in that way? And you start to get to some root causes by asking more questions because sometimes they're not obvious, right? Sometimes 
what you think might be an issue or might be a poor experience might be something else. And there's um, uh, there's a great Theodore Levitt, who was, a, I think, a Harvard professor, kind of came up with a really good example of, you know, when somebody goes to a, a DIY or hardware store to uh, buy a quarter-inch drill bit, they don't want to make a quarter-inch hole. They want to put up a bookshelf. So actually, they want to, they've got too many books might be the problem. So although it, the, the idea might be they're buying a drill bit and that's the interaction, actually what you're trying to do is put up a bookshelf. So it's kind of you start to think a little bit steps further back and get a little bit more into the detail of what are we trying to improve. Um, and I think you know, most HR people can do that pretty well by just focusing on very small parts of those experiences. You know, what's, what's somebody's first day like? Do we make them feel welcome? Do we give them a laptop and a phone and let them get on with it? Does their tech work on the first day or has their security pass not been sorted out so actually they have a quite a clunky first day? Or you do what people like Salesforce do in the US where your first week is volunteering. You know, you'll go and work for someone like Salesforce and they want to get you ingrained in the culture before you start doing any admin. Um, and I think that's a really good thought out way of doing the employee experience. Now, employee experience naturally leads to better customer experience. I think we generally accept that now as a rule. Uh, why is this the case? How does CX feed into EX and and vis-a-vis? So this is, yeah, I think, an easy way to look at this is the fact that we're all consumers, right? So you'll go into a restaurant, you'll go into a shop, and you'll get service from somebody. And we've all had that service where that person doesn't feel like their heart is in it, that they're not in a particularly good mood. And that might be external factors, but it might be because they just don't like the way their manager interacted with them or they don't like parts of that employee experience or it's frustrating. Um, and so one of the great examples I found from my book, I think, was um, Disneyland in Florida. So, you know, the, the, the happiest place on earth is what Disney call it. So, you know, all the staff that work in Disney have to deliver great customer services, you know, w- without exception, because people are paying a lot of money for a once-in-a-lifetime trip and they don't want the attitude of the person that's kind of serving them food or taking their ticket. Um, and so the example that Disney kind of found was at the end of each shift, all the characters kind of hand in their costumes and all that they call the cast members hand in their costumes and they get dry cleaned overnight. And some employees were coming to work in the morning and having to wait kind of 45 minutes in a queue to pick up their costume before they went to work. Um, and they start to realize that actually that's not a really good start to the day. If you're standing in the Florida sun for 45 minutes or half an hour, or even 20 minutes before your shift starts, you're just kind of a little bit fed up and agitated by the time you uh, you start your shift. And, you know, you nobody wants to go to Disneyland and see a, a pissed off or slightly annoyed Mickey Mouse. So they realize that actually we've got to solve that little bit of that journey and that little bit of that employee experience to make sure that these people can deliver better customer service. Um, and so I think it's, it is really that obvious, you know, if people, if, if people feel supported and have a great experience at work, then their personality will shine through when they're delivering that customer service. Okay. Now I'd like to, uh, delve more into, uh, issues around mental health with you. Uh, you, you gave that example earlier, that shocking example of, uh, that, that, that boss over in New Zealand. Um, but according to the UK's health and safety executive, 57% of all sickness absence is from anxiety and stress. And I was watching an interview that you did, I think last year, where you said actually, it's it's getting to more like one in three people in, in their lifetimes will, will suffer from some kind of mental illness. What, what, are, what are some of the biggest challenges facing businesses when it comes to engaging with employees around mental health issues? 
Yeah, it's, it's clearly, you know, right across the world, it's a big issue, right? And I think that relates to part of the things I've already talked about, that, you know, we are we we are li- living in a world we haven't really evolved as quick as, you know, kind of we've experienced, you know, 20,000 years worth of tech development in the last 100 years. You know, we've kind of, we aren't prepared to deal with some of the things we have to do in our lives at the moment, and that's obviously causing people more stress and anxiety. Um, and I think I have a lot of sympathy for employers because this is a big challenge, right? You've got, you could employ tens of thousands of people of all ages, of all kind of, of all genders, of all sexualities, of all ethnic backgrounds, you know, really diverse people that have very specific challenges. And within mental health, some of those groups have different challenges. So you're significantly more likely to develop a mental health challenge if you're in a position of debt, for example. You're also more likely to develop a mental health challenge if you're part of the LGBT plus community. You are less likely to ask for mental health support if you're um, a black American man. So you know, right across the world, you can see that because of stigma, because of racism, things like that, people don't access the services they need, which makes their, their situations worse. Um, and I think that just kind of diversity and complexity means that initially, I see lots of employers are really nervous about, you know, this is a big problem for me to start to solve. So they don't know where to start. Um, I also think that people are really nervous about doing the wrong thing. You know, mental health is really complex and the reasons behind why people get things like stress and depression can be really complex and and not as simple as they might seem on the surface. And so I think employers are crying out for private enterprise to help them with that. And what you've seen quite a lot in the UK is extreme popularity now of mental health first aiders. So these are organizations that will come in and teach some of your employees how to deal with somebody who might be in the midst of a mental health crisis. so despite their popularity, there is very little evidence that they work. These people are not trained mental health nurses. So there's now a growing body of kind of voices on social media kind of saying, look, I think we've we've gone into this a bit too quickly. What if we give our employees the kind of wrong advice? Um, and I think the last one is that, you know, for some, it's still seen as a bit of an intrusion. You know, I think there are still people that believe there is work and there is home life and, and never the twain shall meet. But actually, in reality you know, um, that line doesn't actually exist. We bring work home, and so we bring home to work. Um, and I think getting around some of those challenges is, for most employers, is I try to get across to any of the customers I speak to that just try, just doing something, you know, just even if it's signposting people to, uh, to content and stuff, you know, there's stuff that you can do that isn't mental health support that should be delivered by a, a qualified person. But there is support outside of that where people can just understand what options are available to them. And you see that a lot in benefits, right? So a great example is in the UK at the moment, income protection benefit is probably on a group level, probably only accounts for um, about 20,000 policies, I think, in the UK. So really, really low. Yet its payout rate is so high that the Association of British Insurers basically say that it pays out 100% of the time. And when you look at the figures from the kind of two or three main providers of income protection in the UK last year, the thing that they were paying out most for was to help people with their mental health challenges. And so one of the big providers paid out something like seven million last year just in getting people to return to work after helping them solve their mental health. And most people don't realize that support's available. Most people think income protection is there to deal with a physical ailment, not a mental health issue. And so um, there's lots of stuff available to employers, but the awareness probably just isn't where it needs to be as well.
Yeah, well, let's talk a bit more about uh, the the awareness side of things. How how can companies better train their line managers and colleagues to identify when someone is struggling, and give leaders and HR the the tools to know what to do to ensure that employees know they are being supported and, and cared for. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I think for decades we right across the world, actually, in, in most countries that I've kind of seen organizations in, we have given line managers jobs because of tenure or technical ability and not because they're actually any good at dealing with people. And I have a friend I was talking to about this last night who's just started to manage people uh, and is really struggling with it. And actually, it's kind of, you know, that was thrust upon this person. They were never asked, do you want to manage people? Is that a skill you've got? They never got any training in how to manage people or how to manage conflict and all that kind of stuff. And you know, when I was mid-20s, I was uh, managing a team of about 20 people. And it's incredibly hard to manage people. You know, it kind of anyone who manages people will tell you how difficult it could be to manage the wants and needs of, of multiple people at once. Um, and I, so I think we need to start training and acquiring people who are really empathetic to be our managers. Um, I think the technical ability and training to do the job is almost secondary to actually getting people that are good with other people and care for other people, naturally care for other people. And so I think the first thing that people can start to do, employees can start to do, is to act actively recruit people that have the right, uh, we call them soft skills, but actually I think they're not still soft skills. You know, they're, they're the most in-demand skills for the future of work are things like empathy and emotional intelligence and be able to kind of understand the human psyche and help people through any challenges there might be. So... I think that's probably the main thing employers can start to do. Um, secondly, as I mentioned before, you know, just being able to direct people towards where the support is can be enough. Um, but for that to be done in a really authentic way, your line manager has to be seen as somebody that actually cares because you're not going to go and ask your manager for help if you don't think they care about you. Um, and employers often refer to things like open door policies. You know, my door is always open. Come and have a chat with me. But it takes, it's quite a big thing really to, for anyone who's experienced mental health issues to, to admit there's a problem yourself and then to go and ask for help. So to approach your manager and kind of say, you know, I'm really struggling, I've been feeling a bit depressed or a bit anxious, you know, that's quite a big step forward. So I think it requires managers to really get to the, the place where they're spending more time with their employees as individuals so that they understand their lives outside of work and their challenges but they also create that emotional connection that people can come to me as a manager and say, I actually need help and will believe that A, you will support them and B, get them the right support, even if that's just you directing them to where they can get that support. Okay, we are coming towards the end of this interview already, Gethin. Uh, before we wrap up, last couple of questions for you. Uh, firstly, kind of in summary then of what we've spoken about today uh, for, for, for our listeners in terms of key takeaways, what, what are those core components of designing a workplace that, that employees will enjoy and they'll feel, uh, they'll feel that uh, their employers care about them and they care about their physical and mental health and, and their careers? So I think there's a there's a great answer within that question. I think, you know, it is important that we create workplaces and experiences at work that people do enjoy. Um, and you can do that in really boring environments. I spent five years working in a pensions department, but we had a lot of fun with it. We created a really nice culture where actually people felt supported and people had friends and we all felt connected to each other. Um, so people have got to enjoy that. And I think you can find enjoyment in the most unusual places in the kind of oddest jobs. 
So I think making sure that that employee experience has those elements of enjoyment uh, within them. Um, I think work has to be meaningful. Um, and I think we've kind of got lost really the idea that, you know, we almost told everyone that you have to do a job you love, you know, and whatever you wanted to do growing up, follow your passion and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, people would have, you know, people listening to this would have seen programs like American Idol where, you know, somebody's following their passion, but they're not very good at it. So they're not kind of uh, achieving what they wanted to do. And, you know, we can't all be actors and singers and film stars and all that kind of stuff. So um, following your passion to an extent, I think is not very good advice, but I think you can find passion in places that you didn't expect. So I think about the job I do now, you know, lots of my job is kind of thought leadership, delivering the kind of talks and writing and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I really, really enjoy that. You know, I've, I've never enjoyed a job more than I have um, for kind of the last eight years and feel really lucky for doing that. But it's not a job that I knew existed when I was a kid. It's not anything that even up into my 20s that I thought was something I could do. But as you start to do it, you start to find enjoyment in it and find meaning in it. And I, you know, some of the best sales guys I know never wanted to be in sales, never expected to be in sales, but they found parts of that job, spending time with people, building connections, you know, kind of getting excited about the next sale. They That's where they kind of found some meaning for themselves. Um, and I think, yeah, even, even jobs like, you know, you could be a, a refuse collector and you could be, you could be a cashier in a supermarket um, and you can find meaning in your work. I think there's, there's meaning for all of us. And, and even if that meaning is just why I'm going to work because I've got kids and I need to put food on the table, I think we can kind of just bring that stuff out in the employee experience. Um, I think it also has to deliver um, some kind of sense of accomplishment. People need to feel like they've done a good job, a uh, good day's work. So um, employers can make sure that actually are we making is you know is this fun and meaningful job that we've created helping people to to feel like they go home and put their head on the pillow at the end of the night and feel like i've done a good day's work because actually we need that because work we is a big part of our lives it's a lot of it's tied up a lot in how we identify it as ourselves within society so doing a good day's work is really important to most people you know i don't believe anyone wants to go to work to do a bad job people want to do a good job um, and lastly, they want to be recognized for that work. So people want to be thanked. You know, there's a very core part of what it is to be human is to be thanked. Um, you know, it's, it, it, yeah, it, you, you, you gave me a compliment just before we started recording this podcast about some talk I did recently. And that will stay with me. You know, that gave me a lift today and that will stay with me and that, that will motivate me through for the rest of the day. And everybody's like that, right? The person that stops you in the street and says they like your jumper makes you feel good about yourself. So People strive for that recognition at work as well. And for our US and Canadian audience, jumper equals sweater. Um, it's a good job <laughs> yeah. you and I. <laughs> good job you and I uh, spoke today. I was just about to rush off to to uh, American Idol and, and give up my day job. So uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we spoke. Um, just <laughs> just finally for today, then, uh, how how can our listeners connect with you, and how, how can they get a copy of your book, A, a World of Good? Uh, so the book is available on Amazon uh, in the US, Barnes and Noble in the US, um, and Amazon throughout Europe and Japan. So I think it's in about eight different countries, but only only available in English. Um, I've got uh, my own podcast based on the themes of the book, so people can find that on uh, um, on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. And that's called A Word of Good. Um, and yeah, I'm on Twitter, quite active on social media, so you can find me on Twitter at World of Good Book. Um, and on LinkedIn as Gethin Naden. Perfect. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Gethin Naden, thank you very much for being a guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show.
Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.